welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover Two Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover Two podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. In the fall of 2002, I took my son, Sam, to his first and only Ohio State football game. It was a beautiful fall afternoon, and that day we watched a freshman running back take over what had been a close game, gaining 194 of his 230 yards in the second half. Ohio State went on to an undefeated season that year and won their first national championship in 36 years. Joining me today is Maurice Claret, the former Ohio State running back who led the team to an undefeated season and their first national championship in 36 years. In our two-part series, Maurice talks about his time at OSU, his struggles away from the field with drugs and alcohol, and how he turned his life around. Maurice, welcome. Welcome. Okay. Really nice to have you here today. So, in two short years, beginning in 2001, when you committed to OSU, your life changed forever. As a senior at Warren Harding High School, you became Ohio's Mr. Football. At Ohio State, you led the team to a national title and became nationally known. So, Maurice, tell us what that ride was like, and maybe was it a little too much for a young person at that time? Um, it was um, it was a um, it was a, a memorable t- a memorable year uh, football, uh, both on and off the field. Uh, we had a uh, tremendous amount of um, I would say um, uh, uh, fun is to say it lightly. We had a tremendous amount of fun both uh, preparing for the season, fighting through the games together, and also um, uh, also winning, uh, becoming victorious by the end of the season. I got to tell you, that Washington State game, that was just amazing because, you know, you you didn't, you run, ran just a few times in that first half, but in the second half, you did, you literally took over that game. And that was like your coming out party, I always thought. Do you remember that game? Yeah, we had a, uh, we we had a few good games before that. We had, um, uh, what was it called, Texas Tech, Kent State, and I think uh, Jose, uh, San Jose State, I think those were the three games that we played prior to uh, playing Washington State. And Washington State was ranked maybe fifth or sixth or something like that. And I think we were ranked about uh, probably 11th at that time. Uh, But they were a premier program. And I think, uh, like anything else, it's easy to uh, have success against teams that you're supposed to be. Uh, But the the deal was to say, hey, if if we're to um, 
find out who we are. You know, we have to uh, go out here and get after it against a team who's as highly competitive as us. And so the first half, uh, I think it was a game of just uh, checkers. You know, people understood what we were doing. Uh, they seen the, uh, the, the past uh, successes and failures that we have had in the two or three previous games. And um, in the second half, I can remember uh, just coming in and uh, we, we made a ton of adjustments at halftime. And uh, there was just, uh, there's things that go on throughout a game that maybe uh, the fan doesn't see, but coaches see like, hey, you know, when we were in that uh, formation or in that set, they lined, the, def the defense lined up a certain way. And uh, we'll revisit it later in two or three series and then see if we can uh, exploit it or take advantage of it. And uh, nothing changed for me as far as my mentality or uh, level of intensity. It was just get put in a position to make the plays. You know, football's an often a game of matchups. And um, uh, outside of matchups, uh, just finding out um, um, put, how, how can you put yourself in a position to win or be more competitive. And it's like that every play, just trying to find mismatches. And in the second half, we were able to exploit some mismatches. And uh, also momentum. You know, momentum was a real big deal. Uh, we got the momentum rolling. We got the crowd on our side. And then, you know, uh, when you're playing at home, you know, once you kind of get the confidence from the fans, you know, it's, it's just, uh, it, it just rejuvenates you and gives a different level of focus. Well, I tell you, my son and I had an unbelievable time that day, and, and that uh, the second half in particular was absolutely amazing. Mm -hmm. And so um, from there, that uh, you, you culminated that season with an incredible, incredible game against Miami in the national championship. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that last overtime. Again, that was another one uh, very similar to Washington State, but they were at a, they were playing on a different level. You know, they had um, probably eight Division One, not eight Division One, eight first rounders uh, who participated on that team uh, that year, and um, that was just a, that was the biggest, probably the biggest fight that I've ever been. Excuse me, that was probably the biggest uh, fight athletically we had we had probably been in uh, because they were just destroying. Uh, if you go back and watch the film, they were just destroying uh, uh, certain patterns that we had uh, within our run game. You know, they had Vincent Wolford and Jerome McDougal. And so the movement that we would normally get against another team, we weren't just getting it, and uh, which made it extremely hard. And if uh, you can remember, Craig Crenzo had the most rushing yards in that game. Oh, is that right? Yeah, wow. and uh, wow. it came from just uh, adjustments. You know, it's all yeah. about adjustments. Yeah. Uh, and Coach Trestle was a master of that. Yeah, and so the, even the plays that we ran with Craig, we never practiced those plays. These were just adjustments made on the sideline. Came to the sideline and said, hey, you do this and you do that. Uh, but we just weren't getting any movement from anybody at all. You know, and, um, and you know, there was, a, there was a tremendous amount of turnovers and field position swinging and interceptions. And, you know, at that time, Keller Winslow, I don't know if you remember him, he's a tight end. Sure. Uh, he had a phenomenal game. And um, mm -hmm. it, it was just a, uh, it was a game of just, it was, a, I don't want to call it a slugfest, but it was just a, a gritty and grinding uh, sort of game. And, uh, you know, obviously the play that I maybe most uh, noted for was uh, ripping the ball back from Sean Taylor. Uh, you know, that happened. Uh, obviously a monumental moment in the game. We were going down to score. They caught the interception. Uh, I seen that he had been carrying the ball uh, wrong, and uh, from there I was able to get it back out of uh, his possession and go down and we kicked the field goal, and that essentially uh, is what kind of took us into overtime. Yeah, that turned the tide right there. Yes, and yes. Did a, did, a, did a tremendous amount of good for us, and uh, that field goal is what allowed it after you kind of went back and forth for the touchdowns, which was allowed us to basically go into overtime. And uh, when we finally won, uh, the, the, the irony of it is that, you know, and I think if you go to anybody who wins a championship, 
uh, I think the the thought and the thrill in the chase for the championship is actually better than the actual moment. You know, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, it's kind of like you you reached it, then you say, "What's next?" Like that's it's an immediate. Mm-hmm. Um, an immediate feeling for me it was, you know, like, what's next? Like, you know, okay, we got this now. Like, you know, what's next? Like, you know, that, that was like an almost, almost an immediate um, revelation that sort of like pops over you, you know, because you, you finally get it. But, you know, everything you fight for, you know, it, it, all, it all makes sense. But, you know, it's just on to the next one. Like, okay, how do we get another one? Yeah. So after that amazing, amazing freshman year, incredible. I don't think any freshman in Ohio State history has had quite the year that you had. So... You went on to uh, a troubled next year, and you were suspended. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, well, just throughout the offseason, I have been taking um, uh, illegal benefits or doing things illegally that I shouldn't be, have been doing. They came in uh, the fall of 2003, that would have been, and uh, the NCAA came in fall of 2003. They launched an investigation. Throughout the investigation, they found my wrongdoings. And they um, suspended me indefinitely for the um, for the up and coming season. And from there, there was a uh, an intense amount of depression that set in. Uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, like, you know, what am I going to do now? Where am I going? Uh, how does my life play out from here? And from there, like things just started to unfold. Uh, I found myself back in the nightclubs. Found myself drinking, drugging, smoking, uh, and doing everything to minimize uh, the feeling of what I had going on. Uh, maybe about 2004-ish, I moved out to uh, mid-2004, moved out to California. Uh, again, I was I was suspended indefinitely, so there was no football. It was just a mm-hmm. bunch of working out at miscellaneous gyms. In between that time, you, uh, you you filed suit, really, against the NFL, so you could get into the NFL draft. Yeah. You? Yeah. So that would have been 2003? Three, yes. Yeah. Okay. And so, uh, but that didn't end favorably. No. So ultimately, though, you did make it in the draft. Yes, okay. made it okay. into the draft 2005. Gotcha. Uh, eventually got suspended. I'm not suspended. Eventually, I, I ended up in the, with the uh, Denver Broncos. I would have been a f- spring of 2005. Mm-hmm. Uh, throughout the time with the Broncos, I stayed um, up until preseason. Uh, the time away from the sport and just the um, the intensity it took to be a professional that I had lost during those three years or two and a half years, uh, it really affected me, you know, to be away from the actual physical game, the day-to-day rigor, the studying, mm-hmm. the preparation, the weightlifting, the competing. Uh, when I went back to Denver, it just wasn't there, you know. And uh, I'm, 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 I'm always um, quick to compare it to, uh, I remember when I grew up, Mike Tyson was uh, like a, a boxer of a lifetime. I thought he's like the, the most, the greatest athlete, I think, in the early 90s. It was amazing. Just to know he could that, really yeah, punch. Yeah, yeah, he can knock guys out, grown men, mm-hmm. you know, just the way he was. I mm-hmm. thought it was like phenomenal. And, um, and I remember when he went to prison for those three years and he came back out and uh, he was a seal, same seal guy who knew how to box, but the edge that probably was there from that drive, you know, that was going. You know, that's a lot of things that guys don't measure. You know, when you're away from a game, when you're away from something, uh, there's a competitive um, thread that sort of goes away and the ability to do something. Is that so? Wow. Over that time, it it goes away, that competitive thread. uh, Different things become of importance. You know, different things become, uh, they prioritize over uh, what it was that you were doing. And so Hmm. I think that... um, just uh, j- just the stress from the situation and it not being just about football anymore, it got diluted with, you know, politics and ESPN, um, uh, broadcasting every little thing that took place. It got into, you know, how do you feel about Ohio State? It got into everything but football. 
And for me, that was a lot of uh, energy divided, you know, when it could have been spent on developing a football player. So by the time I got to Denver, uh, all the things that had come from my life or, or that happened to get to me to that point, you know, obviously I was done. I was like, man, you know, I just, I just, I'm not in that professional space and I don't have the, uh, the competitive heart or the physical ability at this current time to be uh, what it was that they drafted. And so um, I struggled uh, my entire time in Denver. I started to get it together during the latter part of the preseason. Uh, but by that time, we had five running backs, and they were paying, you know, two of them millions of dollars. And so uh, the NFL is a 53-man roster. It's a business, and they don't need three running backs, you know, sitting mm-hmm. on the bench. Sure. So they um, they cut me from there. You had a crying pole. You were struggling with a groin pull as well during that during training camp. Where you, yeah, didn't you have an injury? Yeah, but that was all. Um, that was just from a lack of conditioning. You know, there's mm. a, uh, just to be to be clear. There's a difference between training and working out. You know, when you're training, you're you're pushing your body. You're uh, you're, you're 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 getting measurables from baseline functions, either agility drills, speed drills, uh, weightlifting uh, uh, numbers, and things of that nature. And you're trying to constantly push that push your body, you're, you're, you're doing your yoga, you're doing your stretching, you're doing your uh, anaerobic, anaerobic training. It's a, it's a whole process to build up an athlete. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for me, prior to that, I was just working out. I go to the gym, do something to feel good, but it just wasn't training. So when I tried to take that, uh, that, that body that had worked out and not train onto a professional football field, uh, just went last. You know, no, no difference then. You couldn't run uh, a car that was uh, filled with uh, uh, BS, gasoline, and oil, and other products, and put it on a freeway and try to drive cross country. At some point, you know, it's going to break down. You know, just because it doesn't have the appropriate uh, nutrition and training and taught inside the car. So it's just sure. no different from an athlete. And so uh, from there, I leave in 2005, fall 2005. I come to Ohio in um, 2005. I try to find my way. And uh, from there, you know, just things, just uh, just never, it didn't feel like I had a home. You know, I didn't feel like I had like a uh, a place to sort of, not not live physically, like I, was, I wasn't I was homeless, but I just didn't feel like, uh, just from, from a career standpoint, that mm-hmm. something actually made sense in my life and I was trying to hit the reset button. So you're back in Youngstown now? Back in Columbus. In Columbus, yes. okay, gotcha. So what happened next? So things just continued to spiral. Mm-hmm. What made that all come to a stop? Because you uh, really got... Yeah, so I, I had a robbery case and I had a high-speed um, uh, police chase, and I ended up going to prison. And inside of prison is where the, um, I guess, the, the rebirth of some sort sort of happens. You know, there's a lot of words you can put on it, but um, it gave me a time just to slow down to catch up with myself. You know, uh, a lot of times I don't think people realize that they're out of control until they're sitting down and they're like, yo, just my life was crazy just the way I was living. How old were you at the time, Maurice? Uh, 22. You were 22 when you were sent away to prison. Yeah, 22. Um, uh, I was um, sentenced to seven and a half years. I went to um, Ohio, I said Ohio State. I went to um, Orient, Ohio, and uh, about the first seven months, I spent this out of a facility lockdown, about 23 hours of the day for seven months. Went from there to another facility where we were probably locked down, maybe you know 20 hours out the day for the other three years. And so you're in your housing unit, and uh, all of that isolation and stillness uh, is what ultimately uh, helped me to refocus. You know, just uh, you, you think to yourself, you know, you probably you know we're, we're probably locked down 19 hours of the day. So just think to this: if you're occupying the same room or in the same housing unit uh, for 20 hours of the day for four years, 
uh, there's an, an enormous amount of time that you spend with yourself. And uh, in some ways that you get away, uh, it's absolutely uh, educate yourself. You know, reading helps you get away. Reading helps you to get to know yourself. Uh, there, there becomes a point uh, of self-discovery if you're trying to improve yourself. And so I caught myself just reading religiously when I was in prison. What did you read? Uh, every autobiography that you can possibly name, uh, every uh, book about uh, business entrepreneurship uh, on a weekly basis or a daily basis. I would read the Wall Street Journal front to back, the USA Today. It's really more of a fluff paper. Give us some Art. of the examples of autobiographies that you read. Uh, I, I love Andrew Carnegie. You know, Carnegie, he's, yeah. he had a sure. Carnegie story. Mm-hmm. Uh, him and Napoleon Hill, uh, mm-hmm. like I thought were phenomenal. Uh, I read um, Robert Mugabe's, uh, it was a book called Dictators, Tyrants, and uh, it, was, it was called Dictators, Tyrants, and Leadership or something like that. The guy uh, from Zimbabwe? Zimbabwe, yeah. yeah. You know, and, uh, just, just, um, that was good. Yeah, it was. Uh, mm-hmm. um, it was. It was interesting to me. To uh, I, I read about leadership and, mm-hmm. and great individuals, and mm-hmm. um, I think good or bad is all perception. I think that everything needs to be put in context. You know, when you read about somebody's lives and what it is they do and how they do it, uh, I read from uh, Saddam Hussein. Just, just leadership, or just individuals who will be polarizing to the public in general. Huh. That's and, really interesting um, because now the people that are listening to this are gonna think you're holding some of these people that are reviled in the public up to, you know, with a bit of praise. So put this in perspective for me. I don't think, I mean, I don't think there's a, like I told you, everything has uh, its own perspective. Yeah. Um, uh, just because you, uh, if I wanted to get up and read a book about Bin Laden right now, you know, mm-hmm. it, I don't think it would matter. You know, I don't think... Uh, I think you're just gaining information on the person to figure out how they do what they do, mm-hmm. uh, to figure out why they lead the way they lead. And mm-hmm. I'm sure in some of the worst individuals in the world, uh, or who will be perceived as the worst individuals in the world, there's some good or something that you can uh, extract from them uh, to understand how to live your life. So you um, read these through that lens, yeah, that I mean, positive lens, I mean, to pick out the positive from these folks, good and bad. Just think about out this. There. Just think about that. Think about the irony of my life. Uh, depending on who you're talking to, I may be one of the worst individuals or one of the most failed individuals ever. Uh, but if you look at my life uh, just through the lens that I've just described, I think that a person would be able to say, "Okay, my perspective is just to gain an understanding on who he is and why things happen." Um, I don't, I don't form my opinion based upon popular news. I don't form my opinion based upon uh, on anything other than the material I read and who's the author and how they compose this writing and, and why did they compose this writing and what were they trying to articulate. Uh, this is totally different, but I just read a, I watched a documentary. I'm a huge like autobiography documentary fan. Um, and when I went to, uh, I was watching on TV the other day about the, uh, the Scott Peterson trial. And uh, they were talking about it. Uh, it was a show all about the jury and how the jury's perception. Let me uh, jump in there. Okay. I don't think a lot of people know Scott Peterson. Probably uh, half the people, maybe. Um, well, I think the, he's the individual. Uh, I want to say they were they were in California, and through somehow or some way, uh, the, the wife had been murdered. Uh, the wife and the child had been murdered, and uh, they were talking about Just that. A horrific story. Yeah, they were talking about that. Um, it was uh, widely believed, and I, I don't have an opinion one way or another. I'm just talking mm-hmm. about how mm-hmm. perspective right. and and how perspective can be changed, right? Yeah. And uh, the the Larry King was going uh, back and forth and saying, "Hey, I'm not here to say if the guy did it or if he didn't do it, uh, but how did you all come to the conclusion of a guy being guilty?" And uh, when they uh, got to the uh, jury, the jury uh, couldn't give definitive answers on to why based upon evidence why this man was guilty of murdering his family. 
they all felt just because they had seen so much bad media about the guy. They have felt this way because they heard so many horrendous stories. They have felt because the narrative was pushed that this guy was a horrible individual. Uh, but the day after the trial, it had came out that they had massive amounts of tips in the neighborhood about a guy burglarizing people, vandalizing people, and that fit the description of Scott Peterson and was breaking into people's houses. And that lead had never uh, been uh, explored in any capacity, uh, not a fingerprint, not anything. And they say to have that pertinent information for as long as they did, like, you know, even if Scott Peterson did that, or even if he thought he did that, um, by law, or, or just good policing would have been great for this, these people to go and investigate this guy. And I'm not saying if he's guilty or if he's innocent, uh, but the point was that your perception was uh, tainted and jaded based upon what you had seen on the news. And so you may have thought, like, hey, Scott Peterson's a bad individual, but the more you dig into it, um, like, what if the possibility, what if the reasonable doubt, what if he didn't do it? You know, you've never played with that thought in your head. And so sometimes we'll we'll find out information, be it about Robert Mugabe from Zimbabwe and, and all these polarizing figures, you know, all these guys uh, who have uh, they, they've uh, legitimately committed horrendous things. But it's not to say that you couldn't find uh, anything of value from these people. Um, I don't know Adolf Hitler. Excuse me, but uh, I would read his life story just because it's interesting to see uh, what, what how, how would a person or, or what makes a person gain that much influence over people, you know. And I don't know anything about that man other than what I hear, you know. But what if I go and dig and, and figure out, you know, what did his childhood come of and how did he get to the point of becoming that individual? How did he become Adolf Hitler in general? You know, how did Barack Obama become who he is? How did Donald Trump, you know, I don't have an opinion on Donald Trump based upon what I hear with anybody, but, you know, just what, what was his rise or how did he ascend to the level uh, of influence that he had? And I think I'm more interested in the um, in the story, the narrative. I think um, um, I just I just love to study how people become powerful. I think it's uh, very interesting um, of, of how people take their journeys. I think there's a uh, there, there's definitely similarities and mentalities, uh, how you carry out uh, whatever mission or whatever uh, sort of um, uh, 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 of agenda that you have is your own thing, but the, the narrative of how you become, or the mentality of how you become what you become, uh, it really, uh, it, it really compares a lot to athletics. You know, just the mentality that you know, uh, this is the position I feel I can hold in life, and this is the position I should be in, and in my mentality and all my actions to get there, um, it is nothing more than the same mentality that it takes to be great at a sport or great in anything individually. And so that's just my perspective. And, and, and if somebody takes it and they want to say, hey, you know, he looks up to these crazy people, you know, they can say that it doesn't bother me. And if uh, somebody wants to, if, if somebody wants to um, listen with a sense of intelligence and understanding, they don't have to agree with me. But uh, these are things that I enjoyed reading when I was incarcerated. You know, I read from Warren Buffett. You know, I had a chance to meet Warren Buffett when I was in Omaha and sit down with him for five hours. Uh, and just chat one-on-one, -on -one. but he was another guy, like, you know, how did he become who he, he became, you know? Uh, Charlie Munger, how did Charlie Munger become who he became, what he was? You know, how did you build the Hershey's Chocolate Factory, you know, and Hershey PA? Like, how did that become uh, a thing of what it was, you know? I read from the Vanderbilts, I read from the Rockefellers, I read from the men who built America. Like, these are just things that were interesting to me, and so all of these guys fit into that, the modern-day America in which we live in, and uh, no matter uh, whether you like or hate these individuals, um, these individuals, uh, be it with the Gulf Wars that have uh, generated from there, be it from Zimbabwe and, 
and the and the kicking of people out in Zimbabwe with Robert Mugabe and, and, and that whole deal. And I don't know how information comes out of there, but all of these people have shaped the world that we live in mm-hmm. in some form or fashion. How has this all changed you? Oh, man, I, no, I don't, I don't think it's... Um, it, it just made me more aware. You know, uh, it's made me more aware of power structures, just how the... Um, how just how government forms, uh, how how businesses come to light and are formed, and and, and uh, how how people lead. There's a lot. There's there's, there's so many takeaways, and I think that um, if I reread the stuff today, you know, my perspective may change just because I'm a, a little bit more conscious and experienced. Before we conclude, any thoughts for Urban Meyer on this season? Uh, we had a tough one. We yeah, just took yeah, one on I the chin. Know. I did, the irony is I, I, have, I don't even watch football. Like, you know, I'll, I'll, if it's on TV, I glance at it. Um, but I think my life is just the, – the attraction is with people. You know I mean? More of my life uh, – if you look at more of my life, more of my life has been more about uh, the overcoming of hardships and relationships and um, some calls by myself, some not. Uh, but that, that seems to be more interesting to figure out, sustain, and things of that nature. You know, right now, uh, just – the irony is that I'm known from football, you know what I'm saying? Uh, but it's just, it just, I just don't, I'm not interested anymore. It's just entertainment. You know, it's fun, fun to watch. I enjoy, I, I like this, I enjoy watching the bigger games, like the championships, the bowl games, and things of that nature when guys are like, you know, uh, uh, fighting. You know, they, they're fighting, they're intense, they're playing at the highest level possible, and there's a lot on the line. I think there's something American, and in uh, in the the, um, the origin of that like reminds me of when I was a kid and I fell in love with football. Uh, but you know, outside of that, I don't you know I don't really care for it too much. You know, um, I, I like life. You know, I like people. I like you know just real stuff. Like at the end of the day, whether Ohio State's win 50 games or no games, that doesn't bother me. You know, yeah. uh, but when you have people say, "Hey man, you didn't really help me get my shit together. You helped me turn my life around." Or you go out there on that golf cart, you know, you see these guys, you know, and they finally got their lives together. You know what I'm saying? That's real. Yeah, it, brother, it gets no realer than that. You know, we can watch, you know, uh, My Little Pony or something on TV, the Care Bears. It don't yeah. matter, yeah. you know. Like, but when, when you when you see that pain in their eyes, you see it in their heart, or when you see families, and this is stuff. It don't white, black, suburban, urban. That stuff don't matter. When you see people, like you can see the, the like. You can see the like the the look of um, uh, of, uh, of of uh, of strength or or something on parents' faces that they have or, or pride or confidence when when a family's got themselves together like that means more than anything uh, when you see things like that you know signing jerseys and football that's part of it because people like to be entertained but like, I care about life more than anything. We've been joined today by former Ohio State running back Maurice Claret. Join us next time to hear how Maurice turned his life around and today dedicates his time to helping those in recovery from substance use disorder. My name is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.